we are going to finish the series we've had on the Sermon on the Mount. And it seems to me only fair to advise you that this is, um, this is a very challenging passage, a really deeply challenging passage. Um, it, the inevitable outcome of any kind of faithful teaching on this passage is to say if you're not a Christian, then you're in a perilous spiritual position. If you're not a disciple of the Lord Jesus, and if you do consider yourself to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus, it raises profound questions about um, devotion to Jesus and obedience to him. So, I don't know, adopt crash positions, what, brace position, adopt the spiritual brace position, what would that look like? Anyone want to? Anyway, okay, no, you can just think about that for yourselves. Uh, put your spiritual crash helmets on because Jesus isn't mucking about here. Okay, um, sometimes, certainly this is true in theological circles, there's a kind of analysis of the New Testament that goes like this, that Paul is the bad guy, highly judgmental, you know, hard line on ethics. Jesus, on the other hand, is really nice and kind and comforting and just sort of assuring. In some respects, I think that is actually the complete opposite of what is actually true if you read the New Testament. It might surprise you to hear that if you're talking about what we might say post-mortem judgment or hell or whatever you want to call it, the day of judgment, Jesus talks about that a lot. Paul doesn't reference it very much. Um, Jesus warns people of God's judgment very regularly. And he doesn't let people off the hook. He doesn't say that there's any kind of little spiritual formula you can go through, that that's it, you're now off the hook. He challenges people to deep-rooted spiritual commitment, total transformation, complete devotion, complete obedience. This is what Jesus does. He doesn't produce a nuanced message. I will inevitably do that a bit, just because I couldn't quite bear to say this in all its bluntness to you without one or two caveats. But Jesus doesn't seem worried about that. He is quite prepared to challenge people and see them walk away. And, um, and here we are at the end of this great Sermon on the Mount, one of the most significant pieces of human communication there ever has been and he's about to really lay it on the line. Now, if you grew up like me in church, you probably can't even remember the first time you heard about this. It probably involved some of those old-fashioned Bible pictures of a, a wise person building their house on the rock and the, the foolish pe person building on the sand. And actually, what comes into my mind when I read this now is when our kids were small, we had a little book called Stories That Jesus Told. I don't know if any of, the, any of you had that book. And it had some pictures. And what I really remember is that the fool says, I want a house and I want it fast. And, uh, and that was his foolishness. But really, uh, just to underline the point, this is the danger of all of that is familiarity breeds contempt. That we don't actually see these words for what they are anymore. We just see them as a sort of, yeah, oh, that's, just, that's just Jesus. All right, well, let's have an overview of, of this passage. And um, perhaps I could have, thank you. The passage presupposes, doesn't it, that there's a comparison between people building houses and the way we build our lives. 
and that in the choices we make as we build our lives, we are building something. So whether we are consciously and deliberately and intentionally building something or not, building is going on. And um, this forms the last of four ways in which Jesus says there is a, a good way and a bad way. Going back to the, the middle of chapter 7, he said there are two ways you can walk. A narrow way, which leads to life, that's more challenging to walk on, or a broad way that's dead easy that leads to destruction. So there's a narrow way of Christian discipleship and the broad way of, I don't know, Sky Sports, Doritos and uh, soap operas. Walk that way. No, I'm not saying you should never eat Doritos, just to be clear before I get sued. Uh, and um, you, could, you could see as how you like, but essentially there is the, there is the easy way of humanity lemming-like rushing off the cliff. I'm sure Jesus presumably in his earthly life was not familiar with lemmings. I don't know, actually, are they native to Israel? I don't know where lemmings come from. Um, but if he was, I'm sure he would have used lemmings here. Because that's, that's what he's talking about, isn't it? If you want to see, it is actually quite amazing. If you go on YouTube, you could do it now if you like, I'll give you a dispensation. Um, and watch a video, sound off please, of lemmings pouring off the edge of a cliff. It's an amazing thing to observe, even, even, even in a video. And Jesus says that's what, that's what humanity, left to its own devices, is doing. Just rushing off the cliff. He says, but those who follow him, his disciples, it's like they're walking a narrow path, it's more challenging, requires more effort, requires more focus, but it leads to life. Then he says you've got to watch out for true Christian leaders and false Christian leaders. And uh, Tim preached on this a couple of weeks ago. That's a very, very important message because you can get led astray. There are lots of different voices out there, people claiming to be Christians and leading you in. You know, just about every opinion is out there under the, under the banner of Christianity. How are you supposed to know what's true and authentic? Well, at one level, faithfulness to God's word. Secondly, the witness of the Holy Spirit within us as to whether something is right or not. Thirdly, and this is my third test, be very wary of them if they, their teeth and their hair are too good. Okay, particularly if you can search for earlier versions of them where they didn't have good teeth and hair. I obviously passed that test with flying colours, um, but I, I mean there's an element of truth in it, isn't there? If people are invested too much in their appearance as Christian leaders, can you see Jesus going and getting his teeth done? I don't know if Jesus had straight teeth or not, but I'm fairly sure if he didn't have straight teeth, he wouldn't have bothered getting them done. I mean, I'm not sure what the dentistry was like in the ancient Near East, but today I think he'd have bigger fish to fry than worrying about how good his hair looked, right? Worth thinking about. Um, and finally, oh sorry, and then Jesus comes on to say, well there's false Christian leaders out there, the problem is there's also false disciples out there, people who are claiming to be Christians and they're not. And there's a danger of self-deception here. And he says the test is obedience to the Heavenly Father. Now I fully believe that if somebody repents honestly before God, if somebody comes before God in sorrow for their shortcomings and genuinely seeking him to be transformed, I think that triggers a spiritual process that will end in eternal life and also in sins forgiven. 
But if that has truly happened, if that's genuine, if that's heartfelt, it will issue in a changed life. And Jesus says if there's no evidence of that, then this is a false profession of faith. It's very challenging. And that's where we come to this idea of what are we building? And essentially, Jesus says that as we build in this fourth, distinct, fourth um, binary between those who build wisely and those who build foolishly, the difference is how we respond to the words of Jesus. That's, that's the thing that makes the difference between the person who is building foolishly and the person who is building wisely. And what will reveal whether we are building wisely or not are the storms of life. And I think Jesus has something in mind that goes a little bit beyond just simply the things that go wrong. It is true to say, isn't it, that if we've got our foundations in Jesus, then even though our foundations may be tested by the great challenges of life, bereavement, failed relationships, um, uh, job loss, whatever it might be, even though these things might test our foundations, Jesus will keep us strong, even if we don't feel like it. But actually, I think he has a, a much bigger storm in mind, which we will come to. And finally, then, we'll think about this relationship between obedience and grace. Because the danger is we end up thinking, oh, okay, so it's just like a new law. I've just got to obey the Sermon on the Mount. That's the way to salvation. We'll think about it. But first of all, I just want to think about people's, people who have built on sand. Can I have the next slide, please? Most people aren't self-consciously building their lives at all, really, are they? They're just kind of drifting. That's the natural and easy way to go in life, isn't it? Just to kind of go with the flow. And, um, and then there's others who are building feverishly, but they're building on the wrong foundation. They're not building on the message of Jesus. Um, as I reflect on Vladimir Putin, uh, as we all are, of course I feel probably everything you feel, anger, outrage, um, fear. But, um, you know, will, it, will he press the button? Is he that unhinged that he'd do that? And people speculating and all this stuff. Well, in the end, only Putin knows, doesn't he? Putin and God. But um, also alongside that, I think in my saner moments, I genuinely feel a sense of deep sorrow for him. Because he is investing his whole life. A little while ago, he got divorced. He, he went on national TV, as I understand it, and announced that he and his wife were splitting amicably because his work, his passion for his work was such he didn't have time to have a relationship. What a tragic situation. To say, my work is so important, I don't have relationships. C.S. Lewis once said, all the work that leaders do, all the great things, all the great projects, are ultimately so that people can live in their own homes as families and love each other and bring their children up well. So he said the most important thing in life is clearly your relationships, your family relationships, because that's what everybody is striving to do, create a secure context for that. He has literally missed the wood for the trees. And so has anybody who puts their work, their, their attempt to build their own little empire and leave their own stamp on the world, above and beyond their personal network of relationships. That is the primary arena in which, in which life is supposed to be lived. And the truth is, 
We all know that Putin's mad dream of world domination, or whatever, however he dresses it up, is going to end badly for him. It's ending badly for a lot of other people. I don't minimise the, the, the horror it's causing for so many others, but for him personally, it's going to end in tragedy. But what Jesus is saying here is it's all well and good pointing to others and seeing it in others. How about in your heart and my heart? What little, what construction projects are going on and are they founded on Jesus Christ? Only you know. This passage has a lot to say about authority, actually. Underneath it all, it, it's, it's largely to do with authority. What is the authority for your life? Whenever I think of the word authority, the person who comes to mind is Han Solo. Those of you who are as old as me can remember the first Star Wars. It was, is it the first Star Wars film or the fourth Star Wars film? That always gets very confusing, doesn't it? But Star Wars. And he meets Princess Leia. Han Solo is this kind of lovable rogue, used to doing whatever he likes. Princess Leia is used to being obeyed. So she starts trying to give him orders. And at one point he says to her, lady, I take orders from one person, me. I just think that, that's the human race, isn't it? My authority is what I fancy, what I want to do. And Jesus is saying here, no, the authority is mine. And when I say something, you either do it and you're wise, or you don't and you're a fool. That's what Jesus is saying here, isn't it? It's a staggering claim to authority. No wonder the people are astonished, it says at the end, because he teaches not as one of those... Uh, one of their religious leaders, but as one who has personal authority. I mean, in chapter 6, we already saw this. Sorry, it's chapter 5, actually. That's my mistake. It's, it's the second half of chapter 5. He consistently says, you have heard it said, and he quotes the law of Moses, who was the great authority for the Jewish people. He says, but I say to you, and he extends the teaching in the direction he wants to take it. Imagine if I said this morning, uh, well, Jesus said this, but I, James Collins, say to you, and set up a contrast in any way, you'd rightly chuck me out. I hope you'd chuck me out if I started to say that. Jesus says authority rests in my words. You obey them and you're wise, you don't, you're foolish. Well, let's think about the storms of life then. It is definitely true that when you face storms, and all people do at some point, it tends to reveal who you really are. It reveals your flaws, it reveals your strengths. And uh, the hope for the Christian is that if I'm rooted in Jesus, that ultimately it won't be that that makes me strong, but that his strength will be revealed. Just as in the same way, if there's a storm, and this is dangerous, I'm getting into construction, I don't really know anything about construction, but I'm pretty sure this must be true. You know, when there's a big storm, it's not so much the strength of the buildings themselves, but the strength of the underlying rock that they're attached to that distinguishes between whether they'll stand or not. Same thing is true, isn't it? If we're attached to Jesus, it's a strength of what we're founded on that will keep us strong. But I don't think Jesus is primarily talking about that here. And I'll tell you why. It's because of the very first word of the passage. If you look at that very first word 
of verse 24. It's the word therefore. And it's a very good principle of interpreting any document, any writing, and certainly the Bible, that when you see the word therefore, you should wonder what it's there for. You should think about it. And normally what it means is that what is about to come is a logical outworking of what has gone before. That makes sense, doesn't it? If all this is true, therefore. Well, what has Jesus just been talking about? True and false disciples. And he says, therefore, because there is the risk that you, are, you could deceive yourself, that you are a Christian, that you are a follower of Jesus when you are not, he says, this is what you must do. In order to be one who does the will of my Father in heaven, you must obey my words. And the storm, therefore, that Jesus is talking about is what he's just been referring to, the day of judgment. It's not really very fashionable, even in Bible-believing evangelical churches like this one, to talk about post-mortem judgment anymore. Uh, almost, you know, the large majority of Christian teaching these days is focused on the utility of Christian faith for this lifetime. And I don't deny there's a great deal of utility of, of Christian faith for this lifetime. But you don't have to read the New Testament very long, certainly not the words of Jesus, before you find that the main utility of Christian faith is that you would have life forever and you would be spared God's judgment because Jesus bore it for you on the cross. We are training Christian leaders, and I know this, in, in many of our colleges, even evangelical ones, to have a gospel that is almost entirely focused on this lifetime. When the benefits for this lifetime are comparatively small compared to the benefits of the life that is to come. Jesus frequently talks about post-mortem judgment. Now, when I was a child, and some of you, I guess, will resonate with this, I was brought up in churches that, one of the churches I was in, just terrified me about the threat of God's judgment after I died. They were constantly saying things like, if Jesus returns and finds you doing X, that's not going to go well, is it? You know, and some of them were things that I, I don't, I'm not necessarily sure are even wrong. Um, in fact, some of them I'm sure are not even wrong. Is it right to frighten people with the threat of God's judgment? There was a film that loads of people used to watch. It was quite popular when I was a kid called The Thief in the Night, referring to the words uh, from Thessalonians, I think, where Jesus, is, it's said that he will return like a thief in the night. And it made the whole thing a complete object of fear. The thought of Jesus coming back just terrified me. I don't think we're supposed to feel like that. But conversely, Jesus here is, is, is speaking, actually the whole Sermon on the Mount is basically about wisdom and foolishness. And if you look at the Old Testament wisdom literature, it's very clear uh, that fearing God is actually at the foundation of wisdom. Right at the start of the wisdom literature, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so it is right to, according to the scriptures, according to the words of Jesus himself, to be serious about this. This is not stuff to muck around with. This is the, this is, these are the profound questions of life. Either Jesus is mad and he is claiming some lunatic, you know, this, this is lunacy, what he's claiming, or if he is correct, 
then we should be paying very close attention to what he is instructing us here. It would not be my desire to frighten anyone here, but it would be my desire that you would be fearful of disappointing God, fearful of his judgment, and fleeing to Christ to have your sins forgiven, to have your wrongdoing forgiven, and receive his forgiveness and start to live that out. It's either true or it isn't. If it isn't true, we're all wasting our time here. We could go out and do great things that people do on Sunday mornings like, I don't know, what do people do on Sunday mornings? How would I know? Or this is true and it demands of us everything. So how do we balance Jesus' call to obedience here with the gospel as we understand it, that Jesus himself taught, Paul taught, that actually it's all about just coming to God and receiving forgiveness. Well, I want to try and help you understand this relationship between obedience and grace, but I'm not sure it's as simple as a little formula. What is certainly wrong is to teach people that coming to Jesus is just about some kind of exchange in which, because of the cross, he forgives you and then you can just carry on as you were. That's definitely not right at one extreme. Equally, it wouldn't be right for me to say to you, here are the rules, obey them. And if you don't, then you're going to be judged. Because the truth is, none of us could obey the Sermon on the Mount perfectly. And when you read the ethics, they require inner transformation. But here is the way I understand it. All Christian people, although it's not fashionable these days, it's undeniably the case that in the scriptures we are called to a holy fear of God. That we recognise that God is not to be treated lightly. He's the all-powerful God. And when he says something, it's not for us to decide in our wisdom whether or not it's a good idea, it is for us to be obedient. And when we're not obedient, then we're really rejecting him. And, um, and that requires of us repentance. When the, uh, when the Apostle Peter stood on the day of Pentecost and he preached his sermon and he accused the people listening to him of murdering Jesus, he said, you murdered the author of life. Yes, how to win friends and influence people. And it says they were cut to the quick. You know, anybody who's preaching half well, my hope is it's not just entertainment for a little while. It, it's deep spiritual work going on. And Peter encouraged them to repent, be forgiven, receive the Holy Spirit and be baptised. And this is the path we're called to go down to in, as an initiation. And if you're not a Christian, maybe you've been sitting here thinking, I, I, you know, I, I like coming to church occasionally. I, I think Jesus seems like a good bloke, but I'm not sure I'm a Christian in, in this sense of really giving my life over to him, really surrendering to him. Then please don't leave church without giving that very serious consideration. And not only what I'm saying or what the Bible says even, but what... What's going on in your heart? Is the Holy Spirit speaking to you? Do you feel God saying to you, this is, this is the way to live? 
What other way to build your life seems preferable to you than this? Where will it lead? But when we come to God in that way, he is gracious, he will forgive us, but that's not all he does. The Bible speaks of being born again. He changes us. He changes our heart. And it unlocks a process not only of forgiveness, but of change. And as we then come to the scriptures and we read them, the authoritative message of Jesus and his messengers, the apostles in the New Testament, and we submit our lives to it, we find that we kind of go around a process, a process of refinement. We keep messing up, but Jesus will forgive us as long as we're in that place of humility and repentance. When we do mess up and it affects other people, we swallow our pride and we ask their forgiveness too. We're growing then in grace. And then the day comes when we do die and we stand before God or when Jesus returns and actually Jesus will say, I knew you before you were born. I know you now, welcome into eternity. So the grace of God not only brings forgiveness, but it starts to strengthen us, it quickens us so that we can be obedient. And this is the process we go through until journey's end, when Jesus, it says in, in uh, John's writings, that we see him face to face and we'll be like him finally. So my question is, are you a Christian? Have you, have you come to Jesus and really done this thing? And really done this thing? Have you given your life to him? Have you said, this is it? This, this is where I'm going to build. I'm going to build on the foundation of Jesus Christ. If you haven't, no amount of church attendance or being nice to the pastor, although I do encourage that, uh, no amount of singing songs, no matter how good they are to sing along to, will save you. You've got to come before Christ and give yourself to him. More likely, perhaps, as the years have gone by since you made that commitment, the devil's managed to divert you a bit and you've started building in all sorts of directions and not all of them really are how Christ would have you build. Maybe you've got a bit hard-hearted, got a bit proud, or maybe you're going through lots of storms at the moment and you just need the reassurance that ultimately it's not what you have built that will stand, it's Jesus and you're locked into him. What is Jesus saying to you this morning? What is the Spirit saying to you? Bow the knee to him. Give yourself to him. Imbibe these words of the Holy Spirit. We're done with the Sermon on the Mount, at least for a few years, I expect, until we re revisit it in church. But we're not done with the Sermon on the Mount. This is, these are the pillars of Christian faith, the pillars of obedience to Christ. If you will live out this teaching in the strength that the Spirit gives you, it will make you wise. And the things that you build in your life will stand for eternity. God bless you.